Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest for this episode is award-winning artist, writer, and filmmaker Ian McCaig, who has spent decades in the entertainment industry as an internationally acclaimed illustrator and designer, specializing in narrative and figurative art. One of the principal designers for the Star Wars episodes, he has also designed the cover for Jethro Tell's Broadsword and the Beast, and he has created art for games for LucasArts and Film, as well as for their graphic novels and theme parks. He has credits on a host of motion pictures, including Terminator 2, Interview with the Vampire, Peter Pan, Hook, Charlotte's Web, Harry Potter, and the Goblet of Fire, The Avengers, and Guardians of the Galaxy, for which he won the Art Directors Guild Award in 2015. The year before that, he received a Grandmaster Award for Lifetime Achievement by Spectrum Fantastic Art. He has also, for many years, been a beloved teacher of drawing and storytelling, and remember that we welcome your questions and comments for our guests, many already coming in, and I welcome Ian McKay. Good to be ah, with you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. And a pleasure to have you. And first, let me remark on this amazing career that you've had. A lot of praise for your work, deservedly so, and uh, you can exult in it. Um, I'm going to start on a little controversial <laughs> note, though, because you, you have said many times passionately that anyone can draw. Uh, immediately what comes to my mind is <laughs> I don't think very few people can draw like you, but let's put that aside. Um, I don't know about anyone can draw. I mean, I've had this sense throughout my life that, I mean, I saw, for example, you're giving instruction on drawing facial expressions and drawing hair and doing it three times and all of this sort of things. I don't think it's just fear. Let me get this right out in the bat here. I think like my art teacher, Mr. Zink, told me back in the eighth grade, some people have it and some people don't. I don't uh, and yet, uh, Michael, you go to sleep at night and every night you dream perfect people beautifully created, wonderfully rendered, lovely animation. And you didn't have to work to do that. You already have a store of faces and things inside you. And you know how to create people. You know how to do it. Drawing is just learning to do that while you're awake. I can do it in stories, but to make it on the... And I can paint that I like the mix of colors uh, and so forth. But to actually uh, reproduce something that looks anything other than like a stick figure or something along those lines seems almost impossible. And I think really? there are probably a lot of people like me. <laughs> well, you know, I agree. Um, but that is the job of an artist. You do five impossible things before breakfast and you get used to, you get to love that feeling of, I don't know how to do this. And you dive in not knowing and make a mess. And out of that mess, you learn enough skills to be able to navigate yourself to a path of success. And then you hide the other drawings and everyone thinks you're a genius. Well, you made the analogy to dreams, and yet some of your best work has come out of nightmares. There's that story about George <laughs> Lucas saying, give me your worst nightmare, and you went to him and actually scared him, I think, didn't you? I, I did, I did. Yeah, that was that was Darth Maul. It, George is, is fantastic. It's usually one of the questions is, what is it like to work for George Lucas? He was amazing. Um, but it was terrifying at first because he doesn't really give you much direction. Um, for Darth Maul, way back when, there was no script. And he came up and said, uh, Darth Maul, uh, a vision, you know, Darth, Darth Maul, uh, he's our new Sith Lord. Yeah. And then he walks away. <laughs> I think, what? wait, what? Uh, uh, human, alien, plant, what? So um, you, you panic for a little while. And then after a while, I realized that George hopefully cast you for what he saw in your portfolio. He cast you for the kind of artist he thought you were. And he wants you to make it up. Because really his great, one of his many, many great talents is reacting to things, seeing a field of images and choosing this one and that one and the head of this one and put it on the body of that one. And suddenly it all fits. It fits like it was always meant to go together. So that's what I did for the first long, well, many years, worked for four or five years designing that show. And um, I would just make it up, make up my own stories because there's no script. And then, lo and behold, a year before we started, the script shows up. And all it says, in addition to it's a Sith Lord, is that he's a vision from your worst nightmare. Well, you so, were doing Phantom Menace. You were sitting around uh, like a Jedi, in fact, as I discovered. <laughs> well, I, I used everybody. I, I like to put, whether I'm writing or drawing, I like to base it on real people to, to begin with. That's the seed, and you can grow it. In some ways, you sort of stitch together bodies out of different people or memories, and it lies there like a, a Frankenstein monster on the table, but it's dead. 
And then you sort of reach inside and take a little piece of a, of your soul and you put it inside it and it co- comes to life. Well, and in fact, speaking of your soul, um, I was reading where you were talking about sketchbooks and I remember Palace Fine Arts had a wonderful exhibit of sketchbooks. It was so revelatory and so uh-huh. insightful to me to see these sketchbooks. But you said, I would never sell my sketchbook. It's like selling my soul. <laughs> well, it's funny that sketchbooks are, there's different kinds of sketchbooks. There's the one that you have where you work out your ideas. There's one you have where you go to a cafe and you practice drawing or you go to a life drawing session, practice drawing the model. But then there's also what I call the soul sketchbook. And of them all, that's the most important of, of the books. Um, it's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm writing a whole book about right now because I get these emails from uh, a lot of people who were my students or did my classes or... I mentored a long time ago. And and the emails kind of run like, I've got the job of my dreams. I am an art director of this studio. I'm getting really well paid. Why do I feel like giving up? And the the answer is that you trained like a Jedi, got these magic abilities, and then you gave them to someone else to use. You need to be able to use them for yourself too. But to do that, you have to know what really turns you on. What gets you excited? What what are you passionate about? What are you afraid of? So a soul sketchbook is just take a new book. One day, every day, you put something down that moves you emotionally, hopefully to joy and and happy feelings, but things that scare you too. Anything that really you'd run naked in the snow to see or run away from. And don't look at at the book afterwards and don't judge the drawings. Just put them in there. Even if they're stick figures, Michael. That's a high bar, running naked in the snow. I have to reflect on that one. (laughs) That's why I say it. (laughs) I I have done it. It's cold. So after six months, you look back through that book. And truly, that is a snapshot of your soul. If you were honest and put the things that really, really turn you on in there, that's a snapshot of your soul. Then you spend the rest of your life putting that stuff in your work. And every drawing you do is for you. But you've been doing so much in the in the phantasmagoric and mythic uh, vein. I mean, uh, even that, not only scary stuff, but, uh, you know, dragons and uh, creatures from outer space and all this uh, sort of uh, imagery that really is very sharply etched and graphic and stays in the mind and imprints itself oh. on the consciousness. I wonder what you think about what Scorsese has said, that, you know, we need more traditional kinds of storytelling and movies. Those kinds of movies that are so animated and so fantastic and everything are taking over. They're mm-hmm. supplanting and replacing maybe the kind of movies that we used to like to go see that really had real human stories to tell. You mean the ones that I like to watch best? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, I, I confess I do as well. So yeah. uh, where do you stand well, on there, all I, that? I, where I, do you plant I, your flag? I this on st- I've said this on stage at Star Wars conventions. I was never a Star Wars fan. I'm, I'm a 10 years older than that. Um, my Star Wars was a book called Dune. There was no film. Um, and uh, oh, You were a big a- Bradbury fan, too. I- uh, no, am. Am. I spent last night rereading. I start at the end of his oeuvre and go back to the beginning again, just start reading all over again. But we're still talking knew, science fiction more than we are, you know, real... Well, are, are we, though? Yeah. Are we? Good, good speculative fiction is really just stories about people, right? And then you dress it up and you put wings and floating droids and things and people think they're not, you're not talking about them, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also a little bit surprised when I found out one of your main influences, forgetting about storytelling for a moment, at least in art, was Norman Rockwell, who mm. most of us associate with just kind of wholesome things. Oh, really? Poor, poor Norman. He wrote one of the most amazing books that'll fill in that picture for you. It's called The Autobiography of an Illustrator. And uh, it's, it's, all the, it's his life. And obviously his life wasn't all just the sweet Americana side of things. Um, he, but he relates it all exactly like his paintings. Every detail beautifully drawn including the, when he was a little boy eating ice cream in, in a, a cafe and, and the man who, the old man who uh, slammed up against the window and slid down as he died. And Rockwell descri- describes these things as lovingly as he painted them. And you realize that, yes, we, we, life is rich. Life has all sides to it, you know, and they can all, they're all worthy of look, being looked at and being looked at with compassion, which is really what he brought to his, his artwork. Great compassion. 
On the other hand, do you know the name Cam- Camille Paglia? I don't know. Um, Great name. She's she's a writer and uh, thinker, and I had occasion. I actually interviewed Ray Bradbury. I should mention, but I also interviewed her a couple of times. And um, brilliant woman, and certainly controversial. Uh, and she said that Revenge of the Sith is one of the best movies that's ever been made, a brilliant piece of contemporary art. She had more praise for it. She said it has no match. It has no rival even. I mean, the things that she said were so superlative that I was really kind of taken aback. Um, And she even talked about it in terms of George Lucas's life, that he was moving away from a divorce, uh, taking custody of his children. That was in, with the babies at the end. I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but... <laughs> they should have seen it by now. <laughs> well, they should have, right. But, I mean, she's talking about it like it's one of the greatest stories ever told. And, well, isn't it interesting, though, how different stories connect to different people? I, I always say, especially now that I'm doing a lot more writing, it's that, um, half of the creation of a, a book and definitely of a film too, is the audience. Uh, because especially in a book, you give you plant these clues as to what someone looks like and what a scene is supposed to play like. And But the reader's the one who creates it in their mind. They stage it, they, they populate it with characters, but they do it from their own experiences in life. And that's why I think people get very personal about the films they watch and the books, especially the books they read, because they invented half of it. and It belongs to them. That's why it's very, very hard to adapt a book and make everybody happy, because you're never going to be using the same images that they had in their head. Yeah, the they've got is, all these different images. and all the, Totally. They're, yeah, all, they're all collaborators but, with you, really, in, yeah, in a sense. And yeah. it's their book, too, and, and yeah. you have to respect that. But if you can um, take the heart of the character... And be willing to throw everything else away, but keep the heart and recreate, recreate it with something that moves you, then I find generally that the, uh, the audiences are okay with that. I mean, Gandalf was never Ian McKellen to me, but he sure was Gandalf. <laughs> he embodied that character. We've got lots of questions for you. I, I have lots of questions for you. Let me go to some of the questions that are pouring in. Uh, sure. I'll start with, and thank you, Jeffrey, uh, for this first question I'm going to use from Madison, Wisconsin. He says, Ian, you have so much great art that molded many iconic movie memories. When a movie doesn't really hit with the audience, how do you reflect and what do you do to pull the proverbial bootstraps up for the next project? Mm, wow. So um, for things that hit or miss that's that's a combination of so many factors, right? Um, even with the best script and the best actors, best directors and all that stuff, a film can still can still miss. And the opposite is true as well. For things that all went wrong, somehow it comes together beautifully and it becomes a big hit. So I don't put any um, self-esteem or judgment on whether it was a success or a failure. I My job is to serve the story. And if I see that what I designed served the story well, then I consider that a success no matter what the film did. Well, you've Um, been identified with a lot of successes. I just, one thing that's always bothered me about that movie Hook, though, and I wanted to ask you about that. (laughs) Why why did they have to shoot the kid at the end or kill the kid at the end? Why did they have to do that? (laughs) I mean, it made no sense to me, especially since so many kids were seeing the movie. I didn't write that. (laughs) <laughs> All right, we'll let that stand. We'll go instead down under. Adelaide, South Australia, Grant has a question for you. He said, you worked on one of the greatest computer games of all time, Monkey Island. Were you involved in the special edition remake? No, I was not. My my sole job on Monkey Island um, was to take the, what was it? Was it 30, 32 color pictures? We had 32 different colors that you could choose back in the old days. Before there were tablets and, you know, Photoshop and stuff like that. Um, and now we had 256 colors. Oh my gosh. And then I had come over to join ILM, um, but they on hook, but they weren't ready. So I worked in the games division for a little while and they said, can you, can you take these and repaint them with these extra colors? We don't know what to do with them. No, I didn't say that. So can you just repaint them? So I did. I repainted them, but I'd come off of a 10 year illustration career. And I know that you um, can really modulate color by doing a pointless style thing where you put dots of pure color next to each other and let them visually blend. So I painted them in a way where they looked a lot more modeled and realistic than you could do, even with 256 uh, colors. And they they were a big hit, I guess, because they looked a lot more 
uh, illustrative and, and realistic and all the rest. But that was really my my only contribution to Secret of Monkey Island. The, apparently, they're still popular because I see them on the internet all over the place. So It's fun for you, isn't it? This creating... Ah. I mean, it's it's a job for a lot of people, but it's really fun for you. It's not a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's what I would do if I was retired and had all the time in the world. I would do exactly what I'm doing. Um, and and again, what I was saying about that soul sketchbook, every drawing I do is for me. George can use it. Monkey Island could put it on the screen. But I found something that that spoke to me in it and that I wanted to tell people about. Right, and if you do that, your whole career is is fulfilling um, the need an artist has to communicate their experiences and what they see and who they love and what they're afraid of, all that stuff. So, is there a favorite drawing, or can you possibly say yeah. that there are all too many babies of yours? Really, aren't children? They? Children, they grew up; they're not babies anymore. So that was that was one of the high points of my life, as I had designed Darth Maul, Queen Amy Dalla, and all the other human characters in that first film. But those two were real standouts because they because they were polar opposites, right? And that Halloween, that was those were the most popular Halloween characters for boys and girls. So I went and my son, I got to make up my son as the only official Darth Maul. So then I went out on Halloween with my son, and we're walking around, and there's all these little Amy Dallas and Mauls swarming around on the streets and you just want to hug them all and go, oh, my children. Of course, you can't do that, but yeah. Can you tell me where that, your son's name comes from, Inigo, oh, or your daughter, Mishi? Uh, well, Mishi was a hobbit uh, from a That's game of Dungeons thought, yeah. and Dragons yeah. my wife played. And uh, we thought we'd made it up and then we realized Mishi's short for Michelle. It sounds like a, uh, a Polish teddy bear. And oh, it sounds Japanese it sounds, to me. It sounds yeah. like a Japanese car, right? Yeah. <laughs> I drive a Mishi. Um, and then my son, you know, once you've made up a name for your daughter, you have to do something special for your son. And I, I was in Britain at the time and I just couldn't think of anything. And my wife said, you know, after a certain amount of time, if you don't name the baby, they will. So I don't know if that's true, but she sent me off to the naming place and I'm walking around outside just before the closing. And I have a brilliant idea. I read this book called the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And there's a character I love so much in there. I can't remember if his name was Vane or Saltheart Foam Follower, but I found some coins and called her and I said, his name is Saltheart Foam Follower. And she goes, no, click. <laughs> and so I, I went inside and I didn't know what to do. And then I remembered this other book that I loved to pieces. There was no film at the time, but I remember William Goldman's The Princess Bride and I loved The Spanish Swordsman. So I said to the man, uh, his, his name is Inigo. I said, isn't that the strangest name you've ever heard? And he goes, oh, no, sir. Uh, we had a star child born on the on Stonehenge just the other day. <laughs> and where is star child now, I want to know. <laughs> see, you're just a natural storyteller, even when asking about your children's names. I'm going to go to Seattle now. Sky has a question. Thank you, Sky. Did you think you'd live to see so many changes in production and VFX in your lifetime with all the technical changes you've seen? Is there one thing that will always stay the same in your work? Oh my, that's a very good question. Uh, I didn't think that way. So I didn't think about changes or not changes. Uh, for me, it was always about, oh my gosh, I'm in the chocolate box. <laughs> I eat all these chocolates. And I was racing around trying to, you know, sample everyone. And then lo and behold, out comes digital technology and there's all these new chocolates and, and now AI and I'm finding a chocolate I don't like. But, you know, it's, it's okay as long as people are inventing and trying and playing and so on. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a joy. It's a joy to live long enough to discover the swings and uh, changes in society. And you welcome AI too, huh? I welcome invention. Uh, yeah. AI didn't taste good because it's unethical and illegal at the moment. And we're working on changing that, right? We're working on uh, putting the proper um, credit, compensation, uh, consent into that machine. Um, it holds no interest for me whatsoever, though, sadly, because uh, it does everything that I enjoy doing most. Sit down and brainstorm ideas? Give that to a machine? Are you crazy? It's like having, it's, it's exactly like hiring someone to eat your lunch and tell you how good it tasted. How did you do that? <laughs> 
And there's James from San Diego who asks, please discuss your revised and expanded book, Shadowline, The Art mm -hmm. of Ian McKaig, and your creative process. Oh, bless you. Well, I assume that means you read the first one, which, if people don't know, Shadowline was um, my first art book, and nobody really reads art books, so I said to the publisher, can I, can I write like anything I want for this? And they went, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so I wrote a fictional novella. It's my first novella um, about an interviewer that doesn't exist, that wants to come and get the interview from me because his secret agenda is he's written the great American graphic novel and he can't draw. So he's going to get me to draw it. He's sneakily going to come do the interview, but then convince me to do his graphic novel for him. The problem is to get the interview, he has to come to my fictional studio, which is in my head. And it ends up being an Alice in Wonderland journey for him through my make-believe studio where he meets pygmy tyrannosaurs and giant monsters and these roaming, voracious deadlines. Your head is a rabbit hole, huh? <laughs> I think so. I yeah. love Alice in Wonderland. So that first book was really trying to talk about my creative process. There's even art classes in the middle. If you want to learn a little bit about drawing or even professional stuff about drawing, there's six booklets that look like chewing gum stuck in the middle, which now I think we have a link to something online in the revised version. So uh, you can learn to draw from reading that book as well. So that book was revised because we're now bringing out the next edition uh, beyond the shadow line in two years. Um, still writing it, still working on it, but it is an answer to that question from all those emails. Uh, why do I feel like giving up? So the first one was about my a fictional version of my creative process the second book is a fictional version of how to live a creative life. Does creativity have a different source for you when you're storytelling as opposed to when you're creating art or imagery? That's the same. It's, or music. Same or, source. Oh, it's, it's all the same uh, activity. It's just a different language. And I, and I think that, Michael, that goes back to that thing about learning to draw and so on. Um, I'm not that kind of artist that draws things to put up on your, your wall and admire as just pieces of art. I draw to tell stories. And so for me, drawing and painting is a language. It's as much a language as English is, or filmmaking, or dance, or music. And I believe sincerely that everyone can learn a language. It doesn't mean you'll be Shakespeare in that language, but you know, six months, one hour a day of good language learning, learn the skills, you, could, you can order in a restaurant and you can get by. So I, I find the same as withdrawing. If you forget about trying to be good, if you forget about trying to get a job working in the film industry, learn the language of art. It's six months, one hour a day. And I've taught people that for 43 years now, and I have not lost a student yet. You've always said art is a language, and I agree with you. And uh, I think it's important to impress that upon people. You've also on a few occasions said, art supports life. Now, do we mean that as opposed to the obverse, that life supports yeah. art? Yeah. And a well, lot no, of artists I, can't support themselves, but that's another story. We won't go there. We won't go there. <laughs> but what do you mean when I, you say art supports life? I think it's really, really important not to get things mixed up where you uh, validate yourself by being good at something, right? Or having done something good, whether it's a piece of art or a good deed. Um, if the validation was the purpose of doing that thing, then um, you'll always be putting your self-esteem in someone else's hands. I don't like that. I don't want that. I, I think it's really, really important to be a good person and live a good life, whether you're an artist or not, because that's the rich, that's the natural resource that you have to draw from. And the richer your life, the more experiences, the more wonderful things you have to turn into stories or whatever else it is you want to do. That really resonates for me, and I'm glad you put it so well, so succinctly. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to go to more questions in a moment, but you did an all-digital film about Frankenstein. Oh. <laughs> I mean, there are so it many never, things I discovered about you that I had no idea were in your, in your history. An all-digital film? What was it? Well, it was, it was Industrial Light and Magic, yeah. and 
very early on after Toy Story had come out, they saw the potential to do an adult animated film or an animated film for older audiences. And so they uh, they got Universal aboard and they were going to do Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. And uh, I came aboard right after episode after The Phantom Menace. I came aboard as the character art director. And uh, we worked hard on that, that show, spent way too much money. Um, the problem was that we fell right into the uncanny valley, which, as you know, that the closer you get to reality in a digital production, the further away you get from the feeling of reality. So the problem was that it helped the monsters. The monsters were truly scary. The villagers were much more terrifying. <laughs> it just, something was wrong. <laughs> and, and it was simple things. Michael, it's not, pe- people still, you know, try to emulate life and, and uh, get all the pores right and get all of the lighting right. But actually, it's something as simple as what you just did there. It's, it's taking a breath. And you just Whenever reminded you me of the first movie uh, that scared the heck out of me as a kid. It was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Dracula. Mm. I, mean, I must have been maybe six years old. But, um, other than mm. House of Wax, you know, uh, it was one of the scariest things I ever saw as a child. And what is there about scary things? I mean, you must have given some reflective thought to this, that people want, they want to be scared, whether it's, you know, on a scary ride in the amusement park or whether it's, you know, a movie or film or some animation that takes their breath away with fright. I think, I think people want to believe that they can survive being scared. Really, that's the joy, right? You don't want to be scared and then not come out alive or un, un you know, scathed, you've lost a limb, you've lost a loved one. That's not the right kind of fear. So it's kind of like a journey of getting it's out of a, the woods and being able to no. breathe free again? No. Yeah, It's a cathartic thing where you, you scare yourself and realize it didn't kill you. <laughs> realize that you were strong enough inside to survive that. There's also um, going into things we're afraid of, because we do that, right? We, we tend to make monsters into others, other things. That person's a monster, that person is a Republican, that person is a, is a Russian, whatever, and you, you hate that person, you give them all these monstrous feelings because then you don't have to be the monster. But we are. We're all monsters. We're all monsters and saints. And if Different varieties that, of monsters, yeah. But I'm, well, I'm struck by what you were saying initially because there's a book by Bruno Bettelheim that you may know of who was terror, well. a monster of a human being, but he was also brilliant That's, in some ways. And he talks about fairy tales, particularly stories like Hansel and Gretel, about getting out of the forest and then feeling, again, that sense of relief after you've been in the witch's, you know, you're going to be eaten in the whatever. Right. But I think that's, that's a part of it is you begin to see aspects of yourself, even in the scary witch that was eating them. Right. Not just Hansel and Gretel, but, but in the situation that happened there. And often realize that if it wasn't for, you know, a kind wind that blew you to the right side of, that, of a choice you might have been that dark side instead. And that's really good for us to know because that's the source of empathy and compassion. And I think we need that more than ever right now. Frank from Austin, Texas. What was it like to work with George Lucas? There's a loaded question. But we, we by the way, did a podcast with Walter Murch. And uh, I, I saw. Uh, I was mentioning about, I was talking about, you know, George being a, a mechanic from Modesto and all of that sort of thing. But... Um, he yeah, was pretty pleasant to work with for the most part, wasn't he? I mean, this is... Oh, he, was, yeah. he was amazing. He was amazing. He, he's a person and not a saint and, you know, has good and bad sides to him like we all do or good and bad days like we all do. Um, and, and really, it was that big jump of, you know, realizing he was relying on you to be creative and come up with story things. Not that he was going to use them, but he could see them reflect, reflected in your drawing because you weren't supposed to pitch ideas to George. That's different than a lot of directors. You wouldn't sit there and tell them why this drawing was created or why that character looks like this or why he should use it. Um, you stand quietly and let George look at it. And you learn to let your drawing speak for itself. So if it wasn't in the drawing and he couldn't see it, it was as good as not there. And so you learn to embed the story in your images. But you felt validated by him. I mean, didn't you, to a great no, degree? I don't. I don't let anyone validate me except me, and I'm very harsh. <laughs> okay, uh, kind but harsh. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't put my validation in other people's hands because um, that's abdicating 
responsibility for your actions. You have to validate right? yourself, period. I think, yeah. I think that's really important yeah. for anyone, actually, right? And, and it's, a lot of artists will write and ask me about that too, you know. 90% of everything you draw in the film industry is rejected. Of course, duh. It's there to try to find the right, even to find the target. Um, so how do you survive rejection? They say, it's like, well, because I'm not rejected. If I handed in a good drawing that solved the story, it was a success, whether they chose it or not. Um, if they chose it, it meant it was right for their movie. It doesn't mean it was the best design. And that's no disappointment, though? I mean, you believe in your work no. to that degree that you feel... <laughs> you don't need the validation of getting uh, the paycheck or whatever. No, yeah. no. I, like I say, I would do this even if I wasn't getting a paycheck. Yeah. Often I do it. Uh, you know what, Michael? I still do this. Ever since I was a kid, I, I like to hike. I like to go through the woods and stuff. And I would find flat pieces of bark. And I would pull up my pencil. And I would put a really detailed drawing on the side of the bark, and then I would throw it into the woods in the hopes that. Someday, generations from now, somebody finds it, and they think it's some sort of ancient artifact. <laughs> That's amazing. That, it's like, like putting will, a note in a bottle or something exactly, along those lines. Yeah. But don't sign it. Let them find it for the joy of finding it and for the story they'll create in their heads of finding it. It's the best. And yet there are so many people who can't stand that kind of anonymity. They want you know the recognition or the validation they need it. I sure. mean, it says something about your character. It's very unusual, I think, that you don't need it. You probably. believe in yourself enough that you don't need it. Well, probably, or there's just different kinds of people and we all need different things. That's why I love stories, is I love to be inside someone else's head for a while. That's why I loved your interviews. You actually really do a fantastic job of getting inside and having a conversation with someone so that the answers don't just come out, the personality comes out. And I get to be inside someone else's head for a little while. And I get to just grow by understanding that, okay, ooh, not everybody validates themselves. So how do you feel? How do you get up in the morning? What, what, what makes you happy? I do it through interviewing. I mean, yeah, to a great I know. degree. And, I know. And we've got some more questions for you. Uh, <laughs> Reed from Santa Rosa says, I'd like to ask Ian's thoughts about the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Mythic, but seems mainly made up based on traditional characters. Mm. Well, Neil's an amazing storyteller. I don't know him personally. I only know his work. So I use his first name because you feel like you know the author once you've read almost, I think I've read everything he's written. Um, he's he's not Ray Bradbury for me. Ray Bradbury was a, this heart and soul. Everything he writes is like it came from inside me. So I like that Neil's at a slightly different tangent to that. And I get a glimpse into a different kind of way of thinking. But um, his Sandman series was a series of comics and graphic novels that I missed completely when they came out. I knew they were there, but I'd never read them. So really, uh, I only read the first Sandman thing, I think, after I saw the first show. And I, I knew, because I'm supposed to know things in the entertainment industry, what it was about. I knew it was taking mythological characters and... Um, weaving them together, but he wove them in his very Neil Gaiman way. It's, it's not, there's no one myth that, is a, that Sandman is a copy of. And I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoy making Greek gods out of godlike figures, you know, where they're just a bickering bunch of dysfunctional family members. How fun is that? <laughs> what, what, what's different in the sort of stories I like to create, because I'm, I'm doing my first anthology of short stories now um, for a make-believe place called Small Town. And that book comes out next year. Um, and I like the viewer to be challenged and frightened and dazzled and, and uplifted. But when they leave, I want them to leave better than they came in. There's something they have, some tool, something that I can give them, that I can teach them, show them, that they can actually use once they're done the book. So that's well, why you Shadow are Land an is. educator, aren't you? To your soul, to your depth of your soul. Oh, I still learn too. I, I take master classes. I take BBC maestros. I learn whenever I meet an expert in anything. Even yesterday, putting up curtains. You know, <laughs> I had someone come up and, and help me do that, and it was like. There's an art to this. Oh my gosh. Everything's, everything is a, 
as a master that knows how to do it well. Well, to life there's an art. I mean, they're life, living a good life. Yeah. No, but get, living a good life, that is the greatest art. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, Raising children, uh, having, having a relationship. And I've been married now for 41 years. And uh, every day is a first date. Every day you have to win the right to be with that person. And that's, that's a wonderful attitude. No wonder your marriage has lasted so long. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to teach us there from that attitude. Uh, too, too, too many people are simply uh, unable to go. I've, I've had a long marriage as well. And I think mm. what you're saying, there is a great deal of wisdom behind it. Let me go to some more questions. Uh, Kyle wants to know, you mentioned putting the soul sketches into your work. Do you have any drawings or sketches that you keep private or just for you? Some of those maybe bark things that you alluded to? The answer is yes. Thank you for the the segue there. So the book I have coming out this year, hopefully, um, I think in late November, early February, is called Once Upon a Time in the Sketchbook. And that's that's with uh, Design Studio Press. And what that book is all about is I have uh, a plant chest drawer about half my height full of drawings from the last 41 years. And they're all sketches and things that I just do and put in a drawer. And they're fun. And then there's also some a few things from work and all that stuff, but mostly just drawings. And I wanted to share those. So I started putting them on a page together. But wonderfully, I discovered that something I drew 41 years ago up in the left-hand corner with something I scribbled on the couch like last night, suddenly they're relating. That one's now just not looking into space. It's looking at that character down there and there's a, who are you kind of look. And the one down there is, looks like it's asking for something. And so I got, it's great delight out of making a, a big book full of sketches that suddenly are interacting with each other. And I thought, well... How interesting now if I create a story, a visual story, and I throw it in the sketchbook and have it interact with the ones that are already interacting and it messes everything up. So I made a make-believe guardian angel of the sketchbook who's looking for a lost dog. Because of course things get lost in the sketchbook and someone has to find them. So he goes on this long journey to find the dog, finds it, goes to return it. And of course, as it always happens when you find something that was lost, you fall in love with it. And the hardest thing in the world is letting go. So that's it. It's just, it's all visual story. You can enjoy it just as a sketchbook, or you can actually see the story that's in there and, and enjoy that too. Well, as long as you're talking about so many of your projects, I want to put a plug in here. If you're going to be doing uh, an animation festival down in Pasadena this month. That's right. That's and, animation, concept art, uh, everything to do with artistry in the, in the film and game industry. Um, yeah, it's called Lightbox Expo and been running for a number of years. It's uh, Bobby Chu who created uh, the online courses of Schoolism, um, put this together with Jim Dianakis, who ran, uh, I think it was the Emerald City Convention up in um, Seattle. But uh, it's, it's not a convention. It's really one giant master class. And we have all kinds of luminaries there. Jim Gurney, a great illustrator, great, great creator of Dinotopia, will be there. And he, not just inside the building, he'll be outside drawing on the streets and inviting <laughs> people to draw with him. It really is, you know, if, if you've ever wanted to taste creativity in drawing, like really taste it, not, not taste it by having AI do it for you, come, come there. It's the 25th, 26th and 27th of this month. That's right. right. It's, that, yeah. it's that weekend. But come there and join in. <laughs> Try pick... <laughs> Pencil and paper, bring in join. I hope people do come. Uh, when you talk about people drawing on the street, you know, some of these people are awfully talented who draw on the street. And I keep thinking, again, of drawing as a talent. It's like gymnastics. It's like something inherent. You either have it or you don't have it in some ways. Maybe you can <laughs> oh. nurture it. Maybe you can get better at it if you're just mediocre. Or if you're poor at it, you can get mediocre. But for the most part, it just seems almost innate. You know, talent is like being born tall and you want to be a basketball player. Yes, it gets you a few inches closer to the basket. It does not make you a great basketball player. You do that by playing basketball. 
and learning and trying your hardest and failing and then trying and, and succeeding and then failing again and learning from those failures. You know, that's how you become a basketball player. It's the same for art. It's the same for writing. It's the same for being a good human being. You try, you try hard every day. And I think that's the same thing with the marriage and with the life and everything else is that it's not a thing. You're saying it's, it's in the, the effort. It's a lot of it's in the effort and, and the, what you right. persevere and what you put and into it and the energy and all that. And years ago, I interviewed Shakti Gawain, who made up this whole idea of, she didn't make it up personally, but certainly it resonated throughout her work of how imagery can stand you in good stead. And there's a lot of data that shows that people barbell, lifting barbells in their minds and doing it in ways after they image it that they never thought they could exceed that number in terms of weight mm -hmm. and so forth. I used to do that with basketball. I used to be on the court doing extraordinary things as a kid, you know, dunking mm -hmm. and all couldn't do it for reality. I mean, as much as I imaged it, I couldn't do it. That's that's why I make that distinction. But you, you're saying try as hard as you can, do the best, and be satisfied with that. And that's good wisdom. And when you when you see, use the word couldn't, you have to put the word yet at the end. Because you're still here, Michael. You can still get on that court. You can still do it. No. And then one day it just happens. And it's like magic. That's the real reason that I like to do But teach I was making every art. shot from way behind half court and so forth. That's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love your enthusiasm about this and, and your belief and faith in these kinds of things. Well, here's, not, a quote from Ursa, here's a quote from Ursula Le Guin for you. There are no walls so high and impenetrable as the ones we make for ourselves. Uh, so if I you like say that. you can't do it, Michael, maybe you can't. But just uh, change the walls or put a door in the wall. Next time I get into the gym with a basketball, I'll keep that Do in it, mind. Man. There are also physical things that can stop us from doing the things we want to do. Yeah. I've wanted to be a baseball player. I lost most of the sight in this eye. And so I don't have any depth perception. And, you know, I, I can throw a great pitch, but the batter's over there, you know. So it's, and I can't play ping pong anymore or any of those sort of things. And I still want to be a great ping pong player. So what do you do? You find other ways to fulfill the desires that ping pong or the satisfaction that ping pong gives you. You don't give up. You just find a new way. One day I, I probably will lose my eyesight to at least lose it to the point where I can't draw. I, I can play music. I can sculpt. I can talk. I can do my radio plays finally. The best of all creative forms. No, it's like, you know, you find the passion and the passion will find a way out. Well, you just have this remarkable versatility. I mean, you actually, you directed a film. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, they associate you with all these illustrations and designs and so forth uh, and storytelling. But you talk about that film, The Face. And it, was, it was a fun, fun little film with good friends. It was during episode one on Phantom Menace. And um, I'd always wanted to make a short film, a professional short film. I've always made short films. I, I left home... When I was about 14, actually, my parents left home. They left me in the home. Uh, but they left me with a Bolex film camera and as well as a wonderful old, remember the old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders? Oh, yeah. And my dad built one of those. It was gold and it was like C-3PO up there just spinning away and shining light across the room. And I grew up listening to radio plays, old time radio plays that he'd recorded on that machine. So I got with that. I had a Bolex film camera and I had a Remington typewriter. So instead of getting up to trouble for the next four years, from 14 to 18, I, I uh, made radio plays every weekend. I shot a film every month and I wrote Pulp Fiction by that time. It was so bad, but it was so fun. So um, I, I, <laughs> I've forgotten the question. What was the question again? <laughs> well, I was just asking about the face, about the making of oh, that. Oh, about the face. Actually so directing I, a film, yeah. But I've made, I've always directed films. I've always made films. I always helped put on plays and things like that. So this was my chance to do one professionally. I had yeah. a wonderful um, a producer, three, just a wonderful producer, Jill Jerkowitz, who was the managing the Star Wars art department, came in and helped me put that together. Fantastic uh, executive producer, Joshua Green, who ran a company called Stories to Remember. And we um, put this together with a, a beautiful little Bradbury script that I did not write. But then when you direct, you kind of do write. You, you always end up adapting and changing. And I realized it was such a great storytelling collaboration. And my big discovery on that picture was, it was John Nutt who um, came in and edited that for me. And John was one of the editors on Apocalypse Now. 
And um, digital had just started springing onto the scene. But he said, oh, no, you're cutting this on film. You have to learn this first. So <laughs> we did it the hard way. And he also helped me to understand that it's, it's such an amazing collaboration with your editor creating that film. Even if you have the whole film in your head, there are discoveries at that point that someone with clearer eyes can show you that you don't see. And again, it doesn't have to be me. It just has to be a great story. So I was very happy with the way that my first little film turned out. I look forward to shooting my next one next year. I shot other things. I've shot game uh, shoots and advertisements and things like that. Well, that but story we year, should mention is about a young boy who uh, wins a magical storytelling contest, which could fit uh, to some extent Ian McCaig's life story. <laughs> well, that's why I was so surprised by the script. It felt like Ray Bradbury could have written it or I, I would have tried to write it. It's a beautiful story. It's based on a, a Chinese story called The Empty Pot. Here's Allison from Portland who wants to know, are there any dream projects or character designs that you've always wanted to work on but haven't had the chance to yet? There, there are dream projects that I am creating and there's a closet full of them. So... Um, I guess the real answer to that is I, I had a heart attack six years ago and, and basically died and survived it. Um, and when I, no, it's a, it's a long, that's a long story. We'll do that one some other time, but it involves Tom Hanks and a robot. But I, um, when I came home from the heart attack, uh, I went into my studio and realized oh, all this artwork lying here, no one knows what to do with it. My God, I would have inflicted that on someone. So I went through, spent six months, put everything in folders, and little notes and things. And then I saw the closet doors. And when I opened them, it's jammed with stories that I never tried to publish. It just was the joy of writing them. So I said, okay, that's not going to happen. I got to get these guys out of this closet. So I've spent the last six years turning them into books. And I'll probably be spending the next, what am I now, 66 I want to live to 128. So I want to get as many of those out as I possibly can and have a big row of books on the shelf. That's oh, so you're thing. just in midlife now, right? Mm -hmm. This is just yeah. midlife for you. Oh, dude, I am just getting started. Well, it must have been... <laughs> talk about your heart attack, though. I'm sorry. I, I just want to find out. Because you have so much optimism and so much sanguine view of things and everything. But, you know, that kind of close call with death, it's not like those monsters or anything. It's... It's real and it's overwhelming it's, and can be a you know, life-stopping. It's, it's well, I've never been afraid of of death. Um, I like stories to have endings. I don't like suffering, and I don't like people I love to suffer. So that would be what I uh, try to fight against and what I'm afraid of. I guess no, I'm actually only afraid of being afraid. As soon as you're afraid, that means you need to go there and face that fear. It's FDR, the only thing to fear is yeah. fear itself, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the heart attack came because it was just a, a, a thing I didn't know that most people don't know. If you get plaque on your arteries, there's not enough blood going from your heart to your body. <laughs> and we yeah. build that up through bad habits and bad eating and not exercising enough. And I didn't know. I exercise all the time and I eat well, but currently not good enough. And I have a genetic disposition for plaque on arteries. So one day... I, I'm supposed to go salsa dancing with my wife and I get a call from um, an old friend, uh, Ivor Powell, direct, pr produced uh, Alien, Blade Runner with uh, Ridley. And um, he had a dream project that he's been trying to get together called Bios. It's a man who's uh, got a dog that he loves and he's the last man on earth and he's dying. And um, what's, the, what's he going to do with the dog? He's going to leave it to die by itself in this wasteland, this radioactive wasteland, or is he going to shoot it? Or, But he used to be a robot maker, so he makes a robot and tries to get the robot to like the dog and know what to do, and the dog to actually accept the robot as human enough that it'll follow it. It's a wonderful, start, wonderful story. But for 30, 40 years, he couldn't get it made. And then he calls me up all excited on Salsa Night, and now, now it sounds like Tom Hanks is interested in the movie. And Miguel Sapushnik, who directed The Battle of the Bastards for uh, um, Game of Thrones and won an Emmy, is going to direct it. But Tom has seen and been in a movie where he's mostly the only actor on screen, and he had a football, at least, to talk to in that movie, Castaway. But he said, I'd like to know what my robot's going to look like. Or said, we don't have any money, but please, can you draw a robot for Tom Hanks? And I was like, I told my wife, I have to draw a robot for Tom Hanks. I can't go salsa dancing. She... She was fine. She went off to dance with the boys. 
And as I went downstairs to draw the robot, I felt very cold, got in the shower. And when I came out, it was like someone took the dial on pain and cranked it all the way up and I just collapsed. Um, and I knew I, I couldn't think. My eyes were closed. I couldn't open my eyes. The pain was intense. But I lucid dream. I've practiced that since I was 14, you know, where you're conscious inside your dreaming mind. So I woke up in my subconscious and pain can't touch you there. I saw the walls vibrating and I knew that it was hurting out there, but it wasn't hurting in here. I went, oh, I think I'm having a heart attack. Interesting. Um, I wonder if I can puppeteer the body. I went, raise your hand. Oh, hand went up in there. I was like, yes. So I puppeteered the body upstairs, crawled into my clothes, got to the phone. I couldn't make my eyes open. So I visualized the, the keypad and dialed 911 and I got them and got an ambulance coming to the house. And long story short, they got me to the hospital in the nick of time. And, uh, I made them call my son, who got there on a skateboard at the same time. Just as they're wheeling me to the operating theater, he touches my shoulder and my eyes open. I go, Inigo, I'm sorry. And then died and they yelled out, code blue. I'm not sure if my heart had stopped or not, but they rushed me in and saved my life. I'm glad you're still with us. That's all I can say. Three in Uh, the morning, three in the morning, I wake up and I was afraid I'd had a stroke and wouldn't be able to draw anymore. So I called out paper, pencil. And they brought me one of those clipboards and a little school pencil with an eraser on the end. And I could see my face in the metal bar and I was smiling from here to here. So I drew my portrait. And then I took the next piece of paper and I drew Tom Hanks, his damn robot. And I sent it to him, <laughs> painted it when I got home, but I sent it to him and he said, yes. And then the film got made. It's called Finch. It's out on Apple TV and it's nothing like the robot I drew in my hospital bed, but at least it helped to get the film made. Boy, I just saw Tom Hanks in the Buzz Lerman Elvis movie. Oh, how he was plays, that? He plays uh, Colonel, Colonel Tom Parker. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, they've transformed him in ways, and uh, it shows what a versatile actor he is. I mean, it's a remarkable oh, performance. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. Here's Tommy from St. Paul, Minnesota. Do you have a special geographical place that you go to inspire you and get that creative juices going? Yes, but it's not on earth. It's in my head. It's a place called The Shadow Line. And I wrote a book about it, if you want to see it. How many books under your belt? Do you know? Oh, gosh. Um, not, not that many. Uh, and, and I find weird ways to bring stories out. So my first short story was for the Noman Workshop. It was a, a DVD tutorial on how to create a story. I thought the way to do that was to write one in front of the camera. So I took uh, Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid and I adapted it as a science fiction story. So that was my first. And then Shadowline came out. And then I wrote another story uh, about the last man on earth who um, misses his wife. So he decides to build, rebuild her because he's a robot builder too. Um, That came out with the Nomen Workshop as well. And now I have these three books and another two after that. It's it's quite a track record. Let me put it that way. What about the graphic novels though? Where do those fit in? about that. Yes, the graphic novel, I, I so admire animation and graphic novels. So much work, so much work, Michael, but it's the best. Yeah, I did a whole textbook where we took account of graphic novels, and the the reality is that um, everybody thought they were going to kind of take over, like classic comics. That's what they reminded me of, you know, Mm -hmm. boyhood where you have these classic comic books. I haven't. Well, they haven't, you know, because everything's become so digitalized, they haven't really moved forward in the way that everybody assumed that they would to uh, replace the publishing industry or... Everything became a graphic novel suddenly, you know, reading. Well, there's, there's marketing reasons for that too, right? In North America, for some reason, comics and graphic novels were always, especially comics, were always for kids. So, so it was never accepted as grown-up literature. You wouldn't really be caught dead not too long ago reading a comic book out in public. It was snobbery, basically, wasn't it? It's kind of... Yeah, whereas in Europe... You know, their bandesignee graphic novels have been around forever. They're totally for grown-ups. You go to Japan and there's supermarkets that are just comic books. Yeah. And every, everybody's reading. I love it that there's little old ladies sitting reading really dark and sexy tales. And then there's kids reading really grown-up stuff. It's weird and wonderful i discovered so, some really terrific graphic novels for this right i mean yeah. remembrance of things past proust you know in a graphic novel uh right. knocked me out i mean it was terrific 
Yeah, no, there's some, and some that have nothing to do with superheroes and, and uh, talk about really harsh, true life things. I know mouse is one that's often quoted talking about the Holocaust where they, they use mice instead of people so that... That's our Spiegelman, yeah. That's, that's right. But it's what Isabella Allende was saying about magic realism, right? Really, that, that was a very real event that happened to her that she was talking about in there, but she twisted it. George said that too. He said, Star Wars is real life with a little twist. I think magic realism is real life with a little twist, and that's my favorite genre. Was George trying to, uh, we always good in a scary territory when we talk about intentions of authors or producers or, for that matter, illustrators, but he was really influenced tremendously by Joseph Campbell. I mean... Uh, he wanted to communicate a lot of Campbell's ideas, didn't he? Y yes and no. Yes, he did, but not exclusively Joseph Campbell. Um, once again, it, it, something catches the wind and becomes the the kite that we all look at. Uh, Joseph Campbell was a was a very big influence on him, and he really uh, took note of the things that Campbell taught. I know he had him up to the ranch for interviews and and all sorts of things. But George also on his desk had just about every classic book from every culture you can think of and there were, there were notes there were posts that stuck in every one of those books and you knew that he just he wasn't just learning from campbell he was learning from the authors themselves you know here's derek from nashville tennessee wants to know what's your process for ensuring that a character not only looks compelling but also has depth and authenticity easy serve the story that's all just read the story Find out how that character, what role they play. Um, learn the point at which you're drawing. Like, is that character from this moment? Because they won't necessarily look the same as they did when they first came on and when they're leaving. So know what moment you're drawing that character at and where that character is in, in the cast. Is that character to stand out? Is the purpose of that character to provoke or mirror the main character's dilemma? Um, if it is, how do you show that visually? And then just pretend you're working for George Lucas and you can't pitch it. <laughs> do these characters show. become sort of immediate to you? Do they become vivid in a way other than your imagination conceives them? I mean, do some of them maybe even almost interact with you? Always, of course. You know, that's like you're an author as well. They, they start speaking to you at some point, right? And Casting real then, shadows, as they say? Yeah, but, but that's part of what I, that's part of what Shadowline is about is, part of what the, the, the collection of short stories, Small Town, is all about too. I feel this great uh, paradox when I create something because it is alive from the moment I draw it, right? I'm drawing it from the inside out. So it starts with the spirit of the character and the story it's in and then it manifests itself somehow on the page. And oh, that one maybe isn't right, right? If I'm doing my own thing. So I reject that one. And I might even crumple it up and throw it in the garbage and then I realize... <gasps> I just murdered this drawing. <laughs> and I take it back out and I smooth it on. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You can go in the drawer. So there's this responsibility a creator has when they've created something. And I wonder often, what if I was that piece of paper character? How would I feel if I was crumpled up and thrown in a basket and then either taken back out or made my way out by myself. We may have been created by some force that we don't understand, right? I mean... We were uh, created by forces we don't understand, yeah, whether it's sentient uh, or not. That's exactly well, by, by an artist who, you know, put all these things together from the gene pool and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one final question here from James in San Diego. Could you comment on the spiritual aspects of your work? Here's a quote by a spiritual teacher, quote, the true purpose of art is to reveal the nature of reality, which is what all spiritual traditions aim to do in one way or another. Mm. If your search for reality is your quest, that's one of the things you have set for yourself, have chosen for yourself, then I, I think that's absolutely valid. I don't think that's... Uh, needs to be imposed on everybody as their purpose for doing what they do. I My reason for telling stories is because I can't not tell the stories. And I love finding truth. I love entertaining. I love making people smile. I love imagining their faces reading it. Um, and that's more important to me than a search for reality. I think we partly create our realities too. And um, again, I write about that as well. 
You go all the way back. Horace, the great Roman thinker, said, you know, the purpose of stories is to teach and entertain. Uh, And that's pretty much (laughs) sums up what you've said. I I said that was the last question, but one more. Mm. And it's my curiosity, too. Colin wants to know, why did your parents leave when you were 14? (laughs) Well, see, everything's got a story. (laughs) Um, My dad was a physical therapist. And uh, my mom and my dad liked to have kids. And after six kids, it was very hard to raise them on, a, on the, what they were paying physical therapists in Canada, which is where we were living. So my dad had to travel back and forth from here across the water to Port Angeles in the United States, um, which meant being away from his family a lot. So finally they decided this, this isn't good. This isn't working. It's not good for the marriage, not good for our kids. We'll get everyone together. So they moved us all over to Port Angeles, and I went, wait, no, 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 no. I have the best group of friends. I am such a, I love my school. I loved every day of school, by the way. That's another weird thing. But I, I couldn't believe you could walk into a room and walk out better than you walked in. That's magic to me. So I went, you have to leave me here. It's really important. And I argued this stupid argument with them for all summer, and I lost. Actually, they took me over to Port Angeles, and I was there for a week. I learned a week of German and, and other new classes. And my dad said he saw me walking home, and I just looked crushed. And, he's, and he put me in the car, and he said, get in. We're going on the ferry. You're going back. I took the house off the market. You, you can just look after it for me. For which they would be arrested today. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I stayed there for four years with no guardian, no one to look after me. Um, I saw my parents every other week. I got on a ferry, went over and said hello. But otherwise, I learned all the things you have to learn to take care of yourself really quick, except for paying for it, because my parents paid for my time. Well, boy, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I can't help but think about Stuart Brand of Whole Earth Catalog fame telling me when he at his 70th birthday party that this was the halfway point. He was going to live to 140. You just did that with 66. (laughs) I hope that those coming years will be as productive and as winning as your years up until this time have been. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure to sit and talk with you. Likewise. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all of you who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify, or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And we encourage you to become a member of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny simply by going to graymatter.show. And thanks to our team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Kevin, Jeff, and Mickey. And thanks to this episode's special guest, Ian McKay. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.